0: If you have a uterus, you have probably had fear around pregnancy at some point. Fear around getting pregnant, when you don't want to be, when you can't afford to be, when you are the furthest thing from ready or interested in having a child. I've never been pregnant that I know of myself, but I do know this. A fetus in your womb is a very, very big deal. It's a source of joy and celebration for so Many, but it's never easy or breezy, right? There's always challenges. Today, I'm going to share an interview with a writer who recently came very close to having to choose between carrying out her pregnancy or staying healthy or even alive. You'll also hear from Dr. Megan. She shared thoughts for a listener who is going through a high-risk pregnancy right now, one she's happy about, which is great, But she's not so happy about the sex recommendations from her doctor. Luckily, we have some good news for her. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I've been living in a very intense writing cave lately, and I'm finishing my Girl Boner book, which is due to my editor in a couple weeks here, and it's been one of the hardest and coolest and scariest and really fun things, very fulfilling. I've done it a long time already, and I really can't wait to share more with you all about it. To get very occasional extras and news about the book as we move towards publishing, make sure you sign up for email updates at augustmclaughlin.com or you can go to girlboner.org, which redirects there. So, a couple of weeks ago, I attended Blog Her in Orlando. It's this fabulous conference i just adore i had the pleasure of speaking this year and while i was there i sat down with the talented writer you're about to hear from who i think very bravely wanted to explore this very important and often stigmatized topic so i'm sitting here with leah grover a writer who has actually been on the show once before to talk about sex positive parenting and one of the best articles on it i have ever read that's in huffington post thank you for talking with me leah
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm so thrilled to be back. So could you share, first of all, a little bit about your writing, kind of what motivates you and how you got started? I
1: don't know how to not write. Um, So I started writing when I was a kid. I published my first poem when I was in fourth grade and then just kept publishing in this regional poetry journal until I went off to college. I actually kept publishing poetry. Um, until my husband, my now husband got sick. He has, he has brain cancer, and he was diagnosed 10 years ago. And around the time that he was diagnosed, my focus sort of switched away from from poetry. And then I started uh, blogging, and I'd been blogging, you know, just like diary entry type stuff, but semi-public because I don't know how to not write. Um, but when we had our twins, I started writing a parenting blog and i still write that blog <laughs> they're seven years old now they'll be eight soon and i'm still writing that blog um, although i don't write as much about parenting but when i do i do it in a much more sort of uh, global way so when originally my plan was like oh i've been parenting twins for six months i'm clearly an expert and now it's like i have no idea what i am doing individually as a parent but i do have a very broad education and on uh, and, and a very keen awareness of um, the social issues that affect children and women in America particularly. It's it's uh, what I do professionally. I also work for a nonprofit that uh, helps victims, survivors of gender-based violence use their experience to help advocate for others. And so this this storytelling as a method of advocacy you know bleeds into literally everything that I do. So, in addition to writing the occasional funny story about my kids doing something ridiculous, I mostly write about this is a social issue that we are all facing. This is how it impacts my family. This is how it impacts your family. <laughs> this is this is something you should care about. So beautiful, and I love
0: how you write. It sounds like it started in many ways as therapeutic for you and ways to deal with different things and to navigate challenges. And you've written about your own experiences with different traumas. And by sharing it, then by extension, you are doing exactly what you're advocating for, which is helping other people express themselves in that way, which is amazing. And I love that every time I see, I follow you on Instagram and you do these great food smiley faces yes. <laughs> and then you also do these you'll share when you have an article up and each time and like the topic is so pertinent and so bold and you write really vulnerably which I so admire and in a lyrical way it's it's poetic and I know you're working on an essay which may be available for listeners to to check out by the time I I share this tell us about you had a recent pregnancy scare
1: Yes, I had a recent pregnancy scare, which is an entirely different animal when you're in your 30s and you have three kids and you have a mortgage and you have a job and you have constant responsibilities. You know, it's one thing when you have a pregnancy scare and you're 19 and you're just terrified. And when you're 25 and you just, you know, it's it's one of those, that's that's one of those like life-defining moments like, okay, what is going to happen if I'm pregnant? What's going to happen Now but but there's it's a different type of moment. But having a pregnancy scare when your family is complete, you know, as such such as it is, and you've been through it before, when you know exactly what a pregnancy means, what having a child means. You know, for me, this is in my 30s. I know there are women who have had this sort of this sort of moment, this pregnancy scare, as as a mother, and that's really what it is, is the difference, excuse me, between having a pregnancy mother essentially as as, as a child. You know, I, I don't think that teenage, teenage women are children, but when it comes to the scope of parenthood, you know, being a teenage parent is not generally the ideal. You're still, you're still becoming an adult in so many ways. And for a lot of people becoming a parent, you know, in your mid-20s is ideal. And it's the goal. And for a lot of people becoming a parent in your 30s is ideal. And for some people becoming a parent in your 40s is ideal. And this isn't about that. It's about the difference between having a pregnancy scare when the issues facing you, if you are choosing to terminate a pregnancy, are things like, was I irresponsible? Or, or, you know, is this going to ruin my life? Versus, uh, or, or just, you know, what what happened? I was trying so hard and, and it all went wrong. Yeah. Versus when you have a pregnancy scare as a parent, you've you've done pregnancy before, you know exactly how it impacts or has impacted your life your your relationships, your job, your earning potential, uh, your financial situation, and most importantly, your personal health. So when you had the scare, now
0: we've all had scares, right? And sometimes it's a momentary, like it's a day where we think we're going to have our period and we don't. Like how real of a scare or how deep of a scare was this? How far did you go into believing like,
1: oh my God, this is actually... Perhaps really happening. I had taken three pregnancy tests. My period was uh, twelve days late,
0: and which is unusual for you. Which is
1: unusual. I mean, you know, you, the goal is for your periods to be as consistent as possible. Yeah. But um, but in addition to that, my husband has had a vasectomy, but there was a problem during his vasectomy, and as a result, he's at a much higher risk of spontaneous reattachment. What? So, okay, yes. this is something I don't think anyone knows about. So, did they tell you that this might happen, or what happened? What happened is in a, in a vasectomy. What they do is uh, it's a very, very small incision, and there are ways to do it without incisions. But in general, very small incision. A uh, doctor will sever. vas deferens on each side and cauterize each end. And it's that cauterization that's so critical. If the ends are cauterized, they basically can't reconnect. Um, In this case, there was a local anesthesia problem and there ended up being a partial torsion issue. And so one end of one of the vas deferens wasn't properly cauterized at least, which meant that there was much higher risk of spontaneous reattachment. And this is something that can happen. This is one of the reasons vasectomies are generally reversible, is you can go in, get those ends of the vas deferens, stick them back together, and then poof, you know, the sperm has a place to go, Mm -hmm. right? So spontaneous regeneration of the vas deferens happens even, you know, in in ridiculously small numbers of cases, but even with the scotterization. So did – is this something that –
0: like, was he still glad he got the vasectomy? And is it something that you kind of lived with a bit of – Nervousness about, or was it kind of like, well, it's not that likely. Does he was he getting checked for it, or
1: well, yeah. The thing is, you know, it takes it takes something like 12, 12 semen drops before they can be 100% certain that there's nothing live getting through anyway, which a lot of people don't know. They're like, oh, we had the vasectomy. It's been six weeks. It's been 12 weeks, whatever. We're good. And then no, you can still, you can still get pregnant and not with the happy sperm either. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, so that's, that's possible. We were pretty, we were very confident about the decision to have a vasectomy. And this is one of the things I talk about is I am ha- allergic to birth control. I have an allergy to, uh, to to estrogen. It affects a heart condition that I have. It's actually a neurological condition, but it affects my heart. So when you say allergic to estrogen, only synthetic estrogen, or are you allergic to the estrogen in your body? I have a sensitivity to the estrogen in my in my own body. This is part of the problem with my, my neurological condition. It's called dysautonomia, and basically it, it, it ebbs and flows with my menstrual cycle, but uh, when I'm producing more estrogen, I have tachycardic episodes, I have arrhythmia, um you know some horrific vertigo spells they're a result of my brain firing off neurological impulses improperly or being received improperly. It also causes like these weird sensory things, but that's not you know that's that's not a health problem so with with hormonal birth control i um I have bleeding issues. I have much more arrhythmia and tachycardia. And the thing is, you don't want arrhythmia and tachycardia because you want your heart to keep beating. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's ideal. That's the goal is just just beat. Just do, do its job. Do your job. Right. So I can't take hormonal birth control. However, um, uh, there, are, there are non-hormonal options, the most, the most obvious of which is the copper IUD. And I also happen to have a copper allergy. So... Um, my birth control options are entirely prophylactic. So if I have, if I want birth control, I, it, it's got to be, it's, it's got to be condoms uh, or, you know, or a diaphragm or, you know, the sponge. There are, there are lots of prophylactic contraceptives, but when you're married, you know, and you're sleeping in the same bed every single night for years, it is a gigantic bummer you're yeah. <laughs> like, okay, wait. Where the kids are definitely asleep, <laughs> and we've got like forty five minutes before we're really going to regret this. So let's let's get the sponge in and let it sit here for five minutes and like <laughs> try not to pass out. Like, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah not so, realistic. But you know, and since we knew we were done, we knew we didn't want to have any more kids, which I I'll talk about more in a moment. You know, the vasectomy seemed like a really clear option, and then it didn't go quite right. So so the 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 possibility of getting pregnant was was there. Was there.
0: And so you were 12 days late. You had done several tests that were negative, but you also know that it doesn't always show right away. Uh, How far did you go to, did you, once you got your period, you were
1: relieved or? Once I got my period, I had to schedule an extra session of therapy and I immediately went to my OB to talk about my permanent birth control options because that was something that we hadn't really had an opportunity to talk about with my second C-section. We weren't given an option. If we'd been given an option at the time, um, if I had been unconscious, for example, we had an emergency C-section. And if, if the doctor had asked my husband, like, should we, should we just sort of take this sucker out? He would, you know, referring to my uterus, he probably would have said like, yes, please, just, (laughs) just take it. it. But um, yeah. So, so, so the, this, and that really brings it back to what, what made the pregnancy scare so frightening. Because you were talking, there's many health
0: risks, uh, which, you know, I've heard, as someone who's never had a child, like, I know when my sisters have been pregnant, they avoid certain things. I didn't realize how significant these health risks can be. So what was going through your mind when you thought you were pregnant?
1: That I was going to die. <laughs> I really, you know, and it's, and it's one thing to think like, oh, I'm going to die. But you know, my husband, my husband has, has, has brain cancer. He's been living with it for 10 years. He's doing very well, but it doesn't mean that there's, there's a clearly shortened lifespan. We just don't know. And so the reason I was so concerned that I was going to die is as, as you were saying, when, when you're pregnant, uh, you have these restrictions, uh, put on you because, Essentially, you're immunocompromised. Your immune system prioritizes uh, protecting the uterus above other things. It's, it's an evolutionary you know, trait that makes perfect sense evolutionarily. You know You produce the offspring, then the parent is sort of disposable. The genes have been passed on, the job is done, right? So what happens is uh, that immunocompro- you know, the, the, the immunocompromised body. Uh, can't stand up as well to pathogens that a healthy immune system can handle completely on its own. Uh, that might be passed along in raw fish, which is why you're not supposed to eat sushi, or in deli meats, which is why you're not supposed to eat deli meats, or in cat feces, there's trichinosis, which is why you're not supposed to clean the cat box, or in soft cheeses, there's you know these, these funguses and whatnot that a healthy immune system has no problem managing. But a pregnant immune system does or can it's you know it's on an individual individual basis but if you consider the other things that happen to people who are immunocompromised it's not just environmental pathogens right it's not just cleaning the cat box it's not just you know avoiding the goat cheese you know it's it's um it's it's more organic biological problems as well And in my case, and in the case of lots of people who are immunocompromised, it's cancer. During my first pregnancy, I had basal cell carcinomas, which are are moles that are cancerous and that grow rapidly, but you don't require chemotherapy for anything. You cut it off, it's gone, you'll probably get another one. If, you know, completely left to its own devices, you would have a pretty gnarly tumor hanging off of, you know, forever, but it's not gonna metastasize into your lungs or your liver or your your bowel right and during my second pregnancy i got melanoma and uh that was actually my very first pregnancy symptom so i i you know we had we had technically started trying to get pregnant i walked out my front door realized that i had this mole on my chest that was abnormal assumed it was a basal cell carcinoma you know took a pregnancy test like what do you know I am pregnant. So you knew that there was a connection because I'd not heard of this well, between was, melanoma and pregnancy. Well, not the melanoma, but what happened when I had the basal cell during my first pregnancy was that the uh, the dermatologist's um, the dermatologist's intern, who was a real go getter, and I really hope is having a stellar career herself right now because she was great. Uh, she explained this to me about you know the, the the cancers and the immunocompromised, and she said that we do see a lot of these skin issues in particular with pregnant women. And it's not a surprise because the skin is your biggest organ. You don't really think about it, but it is. And so if you're gonna pick an organ that's just gonna be most likely to grow something and skin cancers are just gonna be most common cancers. So you see a lot of basal cell carcinomas. And once again, cut it off and it's gone. Not fun, but you know, not, not, not life or death. So when I saw this mole getting funny, you know, the first thing I did was take a pregnancy test and sure enough, I was pregnant. And the second thing I did was schedule, you know, an appointment to go and and have my cancerous mole removed. And that was when I found out that it was a melanoma. Which is a really dangerous form of skin cancer. Yes, it is an incredibly dangerous cancer. It's amazingly malignant. And that's the thing. I mean, Jimmy Carter, a few years ago, Right around the time I had, well, at any rate, he he had a a a melanoma metastasized in his brain, and there was you know, and so that was super fun to think about, like oh my husband has brain cancer, and now what if there's a melanoma metastasizing into my brain too? Like, wouldn't that be great for our kids to lose both of their parents to tumors in their brains? But uh, fortunately, that didn't didn't happen. But um, so during the course of my second pregnancy, and you know, you're talking about nine months, I had six. Uh, melanoma or pre-melanoma mol- moles removed, and um, a polyps, uh, a melanoma-related polyps removed from my colon. I had to have uh, um, a colonoscopy, which is not standard when you're, you know, when you're when you're pregnant. You know, they're not like, all right, we're going to have to go take a look at your colon. But if you're having all of these melanomas, since that's one of the easiest places to check and one of the first places melanoma has a, you know, it's a very prime location for melanomas to metastasize, they decided to to check it out. Wow. So all these health risks, very real. Very real.
0: And did you, what were you considering? I know that abortion rights are really important to you. You already have valued that, that women have
1: that choice. Is that something that you were thinking about. Absolutely, it was the only option. You know, the the choices were to terminate, if I was pregnant, terminate the pregnancy as soon as humanly possible and minimize those risks for, for, for the cancers or to hem and haw and increase the risks of a metastasis. You know, because just because you're not pregnant anymore, that doesn't mean now you don't have a malignant tumor growing somewhere. Because I don't get the melanomas when I'm not pregnant that I know of. But if you've got a malignant tumor growing, this the fact that your immune system is suddenly healthier isn't going to make it go away. Ugh. And so the the, the the choices were just do it now, rip it off fast like a band-aid, as fast as possible, hem and haw over it, worry about it, make the situation worse, or have a baby, which which is not a small thing. And you know that more so than
0: a 20 year old parent, you know, it's the naivete is gone.
1: As a veteran parent, there's there's no question. you know and, and having had three kids, you know how different it can be, how completely unexpected this, this expected event can be. You have one kid who's going to be, you know, you have a baby and you're like, oh, this baby is, is the perfect baby. They sleep for the night starting at five weeks. They nurse perfectly. They're super cheerful and have no health concerns. And then you have the next baby. And you know, one of my daughters has a spinal cord tether. I'm like, oh, now I also have to figure out, you know, all of these, these neurological, uh, uh, problems that another person relies on me 100% for all of their health needs. And then in addition to that, you know, I also, maybe you're not sleeping through the night. Now I'm exhausted. And on top of that, now my family relies on this income that is a lot harder for me to put on hold, three kids to support. And then on top of that, you know, what if the kid has more significant health issues? And on top of that, what if we just have a really difficult relationship? You know, what, how are the kids going to get along with each other? And this is something that you start to take into account more and more as you, as you, you have children who have completely different personalities. You know, one child might be, might seem, like a breeze. And then a second child individually might seem like a breeze, and then you put them in the room together and and together they're a force of nature that is is literally tearing your house apart or, you know, killing each other, not, you know, maliciously necessarily, but even maybe. You just don't know. There's such an unknown, and you really begin to get a handle of that not only the more children you have, but the more children you know. And the longer you have children, the more children you know because they interact with other children you don't live in a bubble you know and so you you walk into the preschool you may not have a single friend with kids but you walk into a preschool and you see like wow here are 12 kids in this classroom none of whom are like my kid all of whom have their own set of issues i don't know how to make a gluten-free sandwich what happens if my next kid has a gluten allergy and i have to like Rid bread from the house. <laughs> what happens if this kid has a severe peanut allergy and this one only eats peanut butter sandwiches? You know what? It's it's practical concerns that may not seem like a big thing, but that add up into disrupting your entire life. Which is a choice people make every day to have a baby and disrupt their entire life because because they they're they're willing to accept that challenge because they can they they know. That they are capable of opening their home and their heart and their family to that challenge, but when that challenge is thrust upon you, it's sort of a different a different scenario.
0: Yeah, and I know you're very concerned about some of the things happening politically around reproductive and um, all these choices yes. that we do or do not
1: have. Tell us about that and what you would love to see happen. Well, the uh, the the Senate just released their version of the health care bill. Um, at least they did at, at the at the time that we're talking right now, and it is a nightmare for abortion services. It says in there that, and I, I, I sat down, I read the entire thing, and it's written intentionally difficult, you know, language to understand. I think it's very intentional, but um, the language in there regarding abortion is that any plan that provides abortion coverage cannot be reimbursed through through a any any American healthcare act, which would mean that um, even if you did get an abortion through the stipulations, and there's stipulations like if you're raped, then you're allowed to get an abortion, which, you know, I absolutely think that if you if you are raped and you get pregnant and you want an abortion, you should get one. But I don't I don't understand the moral distinction. I think that if it's okay for someone whose whose baby is a reminder of something horrible horrible and traumatic and violent to terminate a pregnancy, then there's, there's no distinction for me between that and somebody for whom having the baby is also traumatic and, and life altering, but I digress. At any rate, um, the language in there does permit abortions to exist in these circumstances, including, uh, saving the life of the mother, which does not apply to me, but, um, but then the insurance company can't get reimbursed for the plan. So theoretically, it's the same idea of access that exists, you know, with everything else. Theoretically, you could get an abortion if you were raped or if you are about to die, but you would still be paying full price for it. Uh. You could get it. Your plan couldn't get reimbursed for it. So that's I mean, and it's, 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 it's nuts. And then you get back to that health of the mother issue. And this is really where it comes down to it. If I get pregnant, I will get melanoma. And if I do not catch that melanoma, the melanoma will kill me and not tomorrow and probably not during the course of a pregnancy, but it will kill me. And so the question for me then is why doesn't that qualify and people don't look at abortion care as being holistic. And the thing is that it is because a woman's body, anyone, a pregnant body, excuse me, a pregnant body is very much changed by a pregnancy. And it's not changed because, you know, oh, there's a new life and we have to, you know, focus on the new life. It changes because of biological, chemical, physic, physical. Changes that occur in a pregnant body, brain chemistry changes. Brains are are structurally rearranged. Uh, uh, bones move. The bones bones break. Bones shift. Tendons stretch. Um, and and then you get into internal organs. And, and immune systems and all of these things change. It's not like, oh, I'm going to get some stretch marks and I'm going to be tired you know, or oh, my vagina is never going to be the same. Your vagina is going to recover a lot faster than your immune system, your uh, uh, a lymphatic system or your brain, which will literally never be the same. I mean it's 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 it changes the structure of it. And so this sense that like oh you can just give up your body for 9 months and sacrifice that and then you're going to be back again is nonsense. What you're doing is is you're going through as much of a transformation as a as a as a zygote turning into a fetus. You know, it just doesn't look as visual to to the bystander. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I had you know thought about I I'm aware of many of the things you mentioned, but many of them I am completely not, which I can only imagine a lot of the people who tend to be, you know, guys uh, who are against abortion don't actually, you know, the term pro-life, if whose life, right? right are are right. you saving?
1: the Nobody's. Nobody's. It's not pro-life if it's endangering the health of, you know, the pregnant body. And it's not pro-life if then the baby that is born is not provided medical care and not provided an education and not provided food and not provided housing. That's not pro-life. It's pro um, pro ex womb sentient existence in the short term. You know, that's not life. Mm-mm. You know, it's yeah. the same way that like is, is somebody who's brain dead and on life support, is that person alive? There's a debate to be made there. You know, there's no brain activity. But the thing is that when, when the pro-life, as it is a pro-birth movement, the anti-abortion movement, refers to life beginning with a heartbeat. The fact is that medical establishment tends to think of death as ending with the death of the brain. You know, They can keep a dead person functioning you know, to preserve organs for, for donation for months with machines, but they don't consider that person alive. That person is legally dead. So if you're going to measure the life of a fetus or of a baby, based on the same medical knowledge, you would have to be starting with measurable brain activity. And at that point, you're talking about third trimester. You're talking about a baby that is pretty much, uh, um, you know, that is is reliably viable outside the womb. And you're also talking about the the number of abortions that occur at that state are only happening because of critical circumstances. Yeah, yeah, that is such a good
0: point. I hadn't thought about the the brain death factor that that really does because it's that is something that uh I've always felt like, well, who gets who how do we know when life begins, right? It's such a controversial thing. And I can see why people would think it's the heartbeat. But really, where does the personality come from, and the spirit, and and all of that, and then the doctor, the medical definition of, of brain death—that's that's really fascinating. I hear from uh, people fairly often who have had an abortion or are about to have an abortion and feel very alone and have no support and feel very shamed and stigmatized, largely, I think, because of you know if if our political system and our culture saw all of these issues differently then hopefully they wouldn't feel that way i know there's other factors that that can contribute different kind of religious beliefs and stuff like that i wonder what you would say to somebody who's in that space who's feeling desperately alone and and knowing they're doing the right thing but also feeling so you know isolated and and having shame because of others imposed beliefs and and their judgments?
1: I would say that that sense of being alone is so false. It's so false. It's imposed societally because people aren't supposed to talk about it. But the number of women who not only have have gotten abortions, and I, I, I shouldn't say the number of people who have gotten abortions, but in addition to that, the number of people who have had to consider them honestly, realistically, and and critically, you know, as I, I haven't I haven't had had to get an abortion. But if I had been pregnant, that would have been stop one. You know, before I called my therapist and made sure I got an extra appointment in, I would have been at a clinic, you know, like, like give me, give me my pills, please, save my life, you know? That the the thing is that there's there are so many women who don't feel that they are, and I said women again, I'm sorry. There's so many people who don't feel that they have the freedom to express this experience. And it's, it's not a small experience. You know, there are people who can get an abortion and then just go about their business and that's fine. You know, and there, there are people who, who can experience sexual trauma and then just go about their business. And, you know, that's, that's, that's not wrong. To have those those experiences and those feelings, but you know the majority of people who have these traumatic experiences and abortion falls into the category of a traumatic experience. You know they need to talk about it and they need to 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 feel that there is some level of understanding and acceptance. And so I feel very much that the shame that is attached to abortion is very much related to the shame of other sexual traumas. And um, and the thing is that the moment you do speak out, you learn amazing things about your network. You have no idea. I tell this to people all the time when I talk about sexual violence, that it's approximately one in three you know, women and one in seven men who, who have experienced sexual trauma in their life. And if you just count, count down the people you are related to in your nuclear family, you know, you have, you have two, two biological grandmothers and a mother- as a general rule, and that's three. So you just ask all three of them, statistically speaking, one of them is going to be a survivor of, of sexual violence. And the same is that, you know, when it comes to abortion, I think it's one in seven. I'm not positive on that, but you have you have enough people in your social network that statistically two or three people you know well are going to share this experience. And more than that are going to share the experience of having to genuinely contemplate that decision. So when you speak out, you know, you do have to be careful. You do have to, you know, you don't want to, to make the first person that you talk to about your abortion be your hyper conservative dad who is, you know, is gonna call you a baby killer and kick you out of dinner, right? You don't wanna make that your first stop. But there are people in your network that even if you don't know are going to be supportive, are going to be supportive. Mm-hmm. And more than that, the, our, our our culture is changing so fast women especially are rising up in a way to support each other that is profoundly moving and um and like a few months ago teen vogue had an article about gifts to get your friend after her abortion wow They have
0: been rocking their content. I just gotta say, I'm gonna just give them a huge shout out because when you think Teen Magazine, you know, when I was growing up, it's like makeup tips. And they're really going for the social justice.
1: Oh, they got so much flack about that article. But at the same time, it was a hugely important thing to, to exist and got a lot of support as well. And it was it was written in this sort of friendly, sort of jokey, like, oh, your friend is having a really rough time. Here's a list of things. It included like a feminist coloring book with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in it, you know, like here's, here's, here's a coloring book of the women who have made it possible for you to get your abortion. <laughs> and then also like um, uh, a heat. Pillow you stick in the microwave. It was shaped like a little uterus because you're going to have cramping after an abortion, you know. And so here's something. And so it was. It was a really thoughtfully curated list, and it was. um, It was. It was lovely and silly, you know. And I think that's really what what people need to hear when they're struggling with this is they need to hear that it's okay. to to take it lightly for a minute, that the experience is universal enough that people can take it lightly for a minute and joke with you and grieve with you and and support you, do whatever it is you need to get through that experience. You have people who are are more and more finding the right ways to have those interactions. And so we're a long way from where we need to be, excuse me, particularly legislatively, (laughs) Yeah, But <laughs> socially, we really are coming along. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And we're at Blog Her right now. And I feel like there's such an energy of that. I mean, Chelsea Clinton spoke with Cecil Richards the other day. Just so beautiful. And I do feel that rising up. And we need to be, you know, standing together. And we need men, too. We need absolutely everyone across the gender spectrum to be standing together and, and working toward all of this stuff. Tell us what you hope to accomplish with the piece, the essay that you're writing?
1: I really want to change as much as possible the face of people who require abortions. Because right now, when you talk about, like, who needs an abortion, the arguments are usually made for young young girls, uh, trauma victims, um, and and people who are about to die, right? And the fact is... That the only person who can decide whether or not you need an abortion is you, and and your doctor, <laughs> but mostly you. And and if you need an abortion and you know you need an abortion, that should be enough. Knowing you need an abortion can come in in all kinds of different packages. For me, it's knowing that spending nine months being pregnant, regardless of if I had space in my family for another child, regardless if I had space in my bank account for another child, regardless if if I had space in my heart for another child, which I know I do, regardless of that, the answer would be that nine months pregnant would result in a very early death. And that's also not pro-life. What use is it to my family to have a baby and then die? right? So that's, 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 that's where I, I am personally on this spectrum and I'm not an outlier and women who need to have abortions for reasons aside from immediate sexual trauma, from immediate, uh, immediate health risks. And that's when they say for the health of the mother, they're saying that if we don't get her in there and get her not pregnant right now, she's going to die That's what they're talking about. They're not saying, oh, this is going to result in lifelong complications that will significantly shorten her lifespan. That, to me, is a health of the mother issue, I mean, clearly but it's that's not what they're talking about. As far as as far as this healthcare bill is concerned, the only people who deserve abortions are people who have experienced enough horrible trauma occur to them that like they get a pass. Mm. And that not only is cruel, but it reinforces this this victim mentality that so many victims have that they don't deserve care because it could have been worse.
0: Yes. So beautifully said. Thank you for sharing your time and your heart and your writing always tell everyone where they can find you online, your website, best way to reach you.
1: I'm um, at becoming super mommy is my blog uh, where I write about all of this stuff, regardless of how little it has to do with being a parent, but it does, it does have to do with being a parent, but at any rate, you can find it at chicagonow.com slash becoming dash supermommy. mommy. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at BCMG super mommy. Um, at Leah Grover Writes on Facebook, um, on Instagram, Leah Grover. Basically, just Google me. I'm all over the place. Awesome. And I, I love talking to people. So thank Yay. you. <laughs>
0: See, Leah, you're awesome.
1: Leah's essay has not
0: yet been released, but if you follow her online, those links that she mentioned, or just Google Leah Grover, that's L E A Grover, you should be able to catch it in the coming weeks. The Senate health care bill, by the way, that she mentioned, has not gone through, though they are still trying to get it approved and are releasing a revised version this week. And as far as I know, none of the changes appear to involve any reproductive rights. I'm just so grateful to Leah for shedding light on such important topics It's also important to note that high risk pregnancies fall on a huge spectrum as far as the severity of risks. They're pretty darn common. And if you're experiencing one and want to have the baby and the risks are all worth it, and that is a hugely worthy decision too. I hope you're able to get all the health care and support that you need and if you don't have insurance or if you're limited or strapped financially I really encourage you to contact your local Planned Parenthood clinic or an equivalent. They often have free services that I really hope stay around. Today's Ask Dr. Megan question ties into this topic. We got this question from Sophie. Sophie, congratulations by the way. Here's what she wrote. My husband and I are expecting our first baby in seven months. The pregnancy was unexpected but we're happy about it. It's considered a high risk pregnancy because I have diabetes When we asked the doctor about sex while I'm pregnant, he seemed really uncomfortable and sort of muttered, best to avoid it. So I said, avoid it altogether? And he said, ideally, yes. I'm concerned about going so long without sex, especially when I find it so helpful emotionally. I, of course, don't want to add any health risks for me or for my baby. Making matters worse, though, it seems like my husband is now afraid to even touch me. Any suggestions would be awesome. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you for your question, Sophie. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say.
2: Sophie, uh, thank you for this question. And first, I want to say congratulations to you both. Um, being pregnant and anticipating you know, your firstborn is an exciting time. Um, But I can also appreciate because your diabetes, there's, you know, there's concern and you really want to minimize any risks to your own health or the baby. Um, And I sort of would just want to say, first of all, you're not alone. About 20 to 25% of women are actually in what's identified as a high-risk pregnancy. So, you know, it's imperative that you have a conversation with your doctor to recognize um, all the different uh, potential things to be monitoring, especially, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, your blood glucose levels. Because, you know, in those first eight weeks, that's really where um, the major organs, the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the lungs, there are sort of developing. But you're already past that window. Um, And then as you enter into the third trimester, the other higher risk is often preeclampsia, which, again, is due to high blood pressure um, and too much protein in the urine. So, you know, in my experience, diabetes puts a risk of certainly the impact of blood sugar as well as uh, blood pressure. And so I'm a little confused, you know, without knowing more. And again, I don't, you know, your medical history at all. I don't know how regulated um, your blood sugars were um, to know how or why your doctor is particularly concerned about sex and penetration, I'm assuming, in general. Um And if he can't really give you a good answer, you know, I think it's definitely worth getting a second opinion from another high-risk OBGYN to really understand and explore uh, what he imagines or believes the concerns around penetration would be. that being said, if worst case scenario, you know, you get double agreement on that one and more information about the why. I think when we understand the why, it always helps us make sense. Um, and I think in terms of your husband and the part of him that's taking distance, because understandably he's sort of got this um, indication that sex would be harmful. No wonder he's sort of taking a step back. But the part for you both is like, you know, Sex and penetration is in so many ways important, but it's a small part of intimacy, connection, and certainly, I think, in terms of closeness emotionally and physically. Let's think about everything but, you know, it's certainly the mutual masturbation, um, you know, stimulating each other, finding different ways to bring each other to orgasm, playing with sex toys, uh, you know, really allow yourselves to think out of the box and what's playful, what's fun, what's intimate. In fact, it almost could be sort of a teasing. You can do everything but, um, and anticipating for, you know, in time and after the birth of your baby, how you can renew your sex life. Um from the sense of penetration. Um, but I think, listen, even when, if worst case, penetrative sex is off the table, your sex life doesn't have to be on hold. And we all know orgasms, what's so amazing about them, it's the dopamine, it's also the oxytocin, which is sort of the cuddle hormone or the bonding hormone. And that's true for you as well as, you know, to sort of bathe your baby in those wonderful hormones as well. Um, so, Really, I would encourage you to ask more questions, potentially seek a second opinion, but recognize there's intimacy and giving and receiving pleasure, which is the foundation of sexuality to me, is completely still on the menu. You're just going to have to think a little bit out of the box. As always, can't wait to hear how it goes. Thanks so much, Dr.
0: Megan. Everyone check her out at Dr. Megan's website, greatlifegreatsex.com. And you can find us both on social media. The Girl Boner Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash mygirlboner. I'd love to see you there as well. I loved what Megan said about, you know, the, the fact that intimacy is so much more than you know, penetration or intercourse, and that there's so many other ways to engage, and even that though, getting a very vague answer from a doctor can be really challenging because what what did he mean? Right? It, it sounded like you said he sounded really uncomfortable, and that alone to me says a lot. You know, I think a lot of doctors they mean so well but they may not know much or have been trained much as far as how to talk about sexual intimacy issues or even the importance of bringing it up, especially with women, it seems. So I would say definitely get a second opinion and find someone who's comfortable talking with you and going over what the actual risks are, why the risks are there, and really welcomes your questions. I do know that there are wonderful people out there, and I hope you found a really great fit for you. and. Congratulations again. I hope your pregnancy goes very well and that you're able to welcome a wonderful, healthy baby um, in the perfect amount of time. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have a question for me or for Dr. Megan, send it to either one of us. You can find us um, by going to either of our websites or directly email me on my contact tab at augustmclaughlin.com. If you haven't yet subscribed in iTunes, I hope you will. It really helps us keep things going. And while you're there, if you could leave a simple review... That would be amazing. Thank you again for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.